Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm your host, Colleen. Just a quick note, as I've mentioned in my previous episodes, I will be in Manchester and London for the Generation Y They Walk Among Us meetups in early July. Actually, the day that this recording is released, I will already be in England, probably hanging out somewhere with Rosie and Ben. Uh, So if you are planning on going to the meetups, let me know so I can stop by and say hi. And then I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. There's going to be a ton of podcasters there, and tickets are still available, so go check out the website for more information. And that's the last time that I will mention those, because this is the last episode that will be released before the events. So with that, let's get into the episode. This topic was recommended to me by my friend Jesse. On the night of October 19, 1970, firefighters in Santa Cruz, California were on their way to investigate reports of a fire at one of the massive hilltop properties that overlooked the Pacific Ocean. Police officers on patrol had seen smoke coming from the area and requested that the fire department check out the houses on the top of the hill. As the firefighters wound their way up the back roads towards the house, they found the long private driveway up to one of the homes blocked by two luxury cars. They didn't have time to speculate on who put the cars there or why, they just cleared the cars out of the way and continued on. Once they got there, they noted that the house appeared to be empty. Since it was on fire, an empty house was temporary relief because at least no one was trapped inside. That momentary relief evaporated when one of the firefighters shone their flashlight into the backyard and into the swimming pool. They had hoped to use the water from the pool to extinguish the flames burning on the back side of the home, but when they shined their flashlight on the water, they were met with a body floating on the surface. As they moved towards the pool, they realized that four additional bodies had sunk to the bottom. All of the bodies had been bound before they were thrown in the water. Realizing that they had stumbled across much more than a fire, they called in crime scene investigators and tried to piece together what happened. 
Aside from the five bodies in the pool, they also had a strong lead with the cars that were blocking the driveway when they arrived. One of the cars that was blocking the driveway was a Rolls Royce, and stuck to the windshield was a piece of paper. Investigators pulled the paper out from under the windshield wiper and realized that it was actually a typed note. It was dated Halloween 1970, and it read as follows. Today, World War III will begin as brought to you by the people of Free Universe. From this day forward, anyone or any company of persons who misuses the natural environment or destroys same will suffer the penalty of death by the people of the Free Universe. I and my comrades from this day forth will fight until death or freedom against any single anyone who does not support natural life on this planet. Materialism must die or mankind will. Signed, the Knight of Wands, Knight of Cups, Knight of Pentacles, and Knight of Swords. The Knight references refer to different tarot cards. The tone of the note, combined with the close proximity to Halloween, the fact that it was the 1970s, and that they were barely a year out from the Manson murders in Los Angeles, caused investigators to fear that they had a ritualistic murder on their hands in Santa Cruz. As for the fire, it was not large enough to completely destroy the home. An investigation inside the entirety of the house determined that multiple fires had been set. This made them believe that whoever was responsible very much intended for the house to burn to the ground before the bodies were found. Nothing was stolen from the house, and there were plenty of expensive electronics and jewelry out in the open. Plus, there were expensive cars in the driveway, and the perpetrator had access to the keys because the cars were positioned to block the driveway purposefully. Because no electronics and jewelry seemed to be missing, and the bizarre placement of the cars, burglary was ruled out as the primary motive. So with no immediate motives becoming apparent, investigators turned the investigation on the owners of the home. It was determined by investigators that the deceased people in the pool were the Ota family and an employee of Dr. Ota's practice. The home was owned by 45-year-old Dr. Victor Ota, a local and well-known ophthalmologist. He was the son of Japanese immigrants and enlisted in the Air Force and worked his way up to the rank of major before being discharged. He attended medical school at Northwestern and then went on to open a practice in Santa Cruz that in 1970 had been up and running for nearly a decade. He was married to his wife, Virginia, and they had two sons, 12-year-old Derek and 11-year-old Taggart, the couple also had two older teenage daughters, Tora and Lark, who were living away at boarding school at the time of the murders. All four of the Odas were found in the pool. The fifth body belonged to 38-year-old Dorothy Cadwallader, who was Dr. Oda's secretary at his practice. She was married as well and the mother of two young children. All of the victims had their hands bound with scarves and were shot. 
Virginia, Taggart, Derek, and Dorothy were all shot once in the back of the head in what investigators called execution style. Dr. Odo was shot multiple times in the chest and the back. Over the years of running a successful practice, Dr. Oda had accumulated a serious amount of wealth that was spent on cars, private school for his kids, and the large home that they resided in. Investigators determined that someone took issue with Dr. Oda and his lifestyle and decided to take matters into their own hands. However, the Odas were pretty well known around town and liked by those who knew them personally. While the investigation continued to piece together the motive behind the murder, Santa Cruz residents were gripped with fear. In the 1970s, Santa Cruz saw a lot of high-profile violent crime. Serial killer Edmund Kemper killed 10 people, including some of his own family members during this decade. And Herbert Mullen was another serial killer located in Santa Cruz, and he killed 13 people before being apprehended. He believed that he had to kill people in order to prevent devastating earthquakes from hitting California, and he believed he was called to do so because his birthday was on the anniversary of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake that leveled much of the city. Oddly enough, just a week after he was arrested, a moderately sized earthquake hit Southern California. So a violent, seemingly random, high-profile crime local to the area was enough to send residents over the edge. The murders had residents in such a state of fear that the mayor issued the following statement at a press conference urging citizens to let police work and not take matters into their own hands. He said, I've received innumerable telephone calls requesting, in many cases demanding, immediate action, even to the point where some believe that a state of martial law should be declared. I have every confidence in our sheriffs and police departments in this county that should more drastic steps be necessary, they would be the first to call for such action. I have been told, if you don't do something right away, we're going to take the law into our own hands. Any talk of formation of vigilante groups at this time should not be given serious consideration. People are understandably very upset, but in situations like this, we as citizens must exercise a sense of reasonableness. Even though local residents were upset and demanding action, Investigators were by no means sitting on their hands and waiting for leads to come to them. They questioned anyone and everyone that they could. Investigators were able to rule out most of the acquaintances of the Odas, and no one seemed to have a known issue with them. On the contrary, the community rallied in support of the Odas. Not only had Dr. Oda practiced in Santa Cruz for nearly a decade, he was also one of the founders of a local hospital. Most considered the Odas to be pillars of their community, and well over a thousand people attended their funerals. Residents set up reward funds for any information that would bring the killer to justice. This added to the existing reward from law enforcement, as well as a reward that was set up by the County Board of Supervisors. 
In the 1970s, Santa Cruz saw a large rise in their hippie population. Most of the older residents who had lived in Santa Cruz for decades did not like the younger hippie crowd moving in and were vocal with their issues with these newcomers and their lifestyle. When the Oda family was murdered, there were immediate comparisons drawn to the Manson family. They had described themselves as a family of hippies, so many residents in Santa Cruz wanted law enforcement to focus their investigation there. Some local government officials agreed, with the county board chairman saying the following at a county board meeting. I know some people will scream about their rights getting stepped on, but we are going to have to start looking at the transient elements and those people who come here with no visible way of making a living. When investigators were unable to get a solid lead within the first couple of days of the murder, and with citizens growing more fearful and demanding immediate action, officials decided to release the contents of the letter found on the windshield. Officials knew that releasing the letter was a risk, but they hoped that it would spur someone to come forward with useful information. Once the letter was released, the community became even more divided. The contents of the letter essentially confirmed the fears of the older community that the person responsible for the murders was more aligned with the stereotypical mindset of hippies, but the author of the letter took their beliefs to the extreme and people were afraid that it was a matter of time before Santa Cruz had another mass murder on their hands. Luckily, investigators' best-case scenario came true. Despite the outrage the letter caused, it also motivated people to come forward with tips and leads. One of these leads came from a local group of hippies who said that the contents of the note reminded them of someone within their social circle. They also said that this particular individual had some pretty out-there ideas, some of which even made them uncomfortable. They made it clear when they came forward that this guy and his ideas did not represent the community as a whole, and they hoped that the police could stop him before he hurt anyone else. His name was John Lindley Frazier. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. John Lindley Frazier was born in Ohio in 1946, relocated to California while he was young, and grew up in Santa Cruz. 
As a child, he was reportedly a handful, and as a teenager, he had a couple run-ins with law enforcement. He left his high school before graduation and started to straighten his life out. John was trained as an auto mechanic, and it appeared that he had turned his life around for the better. As an adult, the general consensus of those who knew him said that he was a hard worker, but he had a rougher side to him that could occasionally get him into trouble. He moved back to Ohio in the late 1960s, where he met and married his wife. At some point, John and his wife moved back to California and settled in the Santa Cruz area near John's mother. In fact, his mother's house was actually just a couple miles away from the Oda residence. About a year prior to the murders, John's friends and family noticed that he began to behave bizarrely. He was 24 years old and had more or less been doing well for himself since he left high school. But suddenly, he left his job and began disappearing into the woods to take acid and mescaline. He started talking about visions he had and said that God was delivering him messages through his psychedelic drug use. John discussing his visions with his friends turned into him ranting about the importance of preserving nature and living modestly. He became more and more aggressive, and many of his acquaintances began to think that he was pushing his beliefs a little too far. Soon John was telling people that God was giving him messages that he should hurt and even kill people who are overly materialistic and harm the environment. He began to rant against wealthy people and believed that people who owned expensive homes and cars were materialistic and therefore bad. He quit his job at the mechanic and stopped riding in cars due to the pollution that they caused. He railed against materialism and polluting the environment so often that when the contents of the note left at the Odas was released, his acquaintances believed that John was responsible. Once John's name was given to the police, they immediately set out to find him. Police visited his mother's property and found that there was a small, bare-bones cabin at the edge of the property. This piece of land was in the same area as the Oda residence, and John had been living there off and on since he separated from his wife nearly a year earlier. Police descended on the cabin that was overgrown with brush and damaged due to years of age and lack of regular upkeep. John's mother's property was fairly large, and the cabin was half a mile away from the main house. This half-mile walk was not a straight shot, though. Rather, it involved trekking through trails that had not been maintained in years. The cabin itself was very small, and inside, police found John. He surrendered without incident on October 23rd, just four days after the murders. He was arrested just a couple of miles away from the scene of the crime. Investigators informed John's wife that he had been arrested for the Oda murders. She told them that they had separated several months earlier, but she did remain in occasional contact with him. 
John had actually been at her house the day before the murder, and he left the next morning telling her that he was going to move to New York. He gave his wife his wallet and driver's license and told her that he wouldn't need them any longer and that he wasn't planning on coming back. John Lindley Frazier was indicted on five counts of murder on October 28, 1970. Since it was John's hippie friends that gave information to law enforcement that led to an arrest, the tensions between them and the longtime Santa Cruz residents were reduced. The trial began in October of 1971. It was moved from Santa Cruz to nearby Redwood City. The DA in Santa Cruz did fight hard to keep the trial local, saying that the murders had been so widely reported, there was no reason not to try the murders where they took place. John entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. During the trial, the jurors accompanied by John, sheriffs, and news outlets caravaned to the scene of the arrest as well as the scene of the murders. The trip at the scene of the crime was well documented by the reporters on the scene. It was actually a little bizarre, all of these people being together outside of the courtroom setting. For example, when they got to John's mom's property, The sheriffs allowed John to play with a puppy that ran up to him when he arrived, and then suddenly he kicked and punched a car that was parked nearby. There's also a picture of John laughing as he is put back into the patrol car for the journey back to Redwood City. During the month-long trial, John's actions were odd. He had entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and the way he was acting at trial made people question whether he was putting on an act to try and strengthen the reasoning behind his plea. John said that he wanted to be put to death because he felt that was better than, quote, any fascist pigs working on my head. He disrupted the proceedings, and on one occasion, he actually showed up to court with one half of his head and face completely shaved bald. The other half was still covered by his eyebrow, long hair, and beard. John was also seen throughout the trial muttering under his breath and threw crumpled up bits of paper at reporters in the courtroom. A court-appointed psychologist ruled that he believed that John was faking insanity. But the psychologist said that they did not believe John was faking insanity so he would be found not guilty. Instead, they reported to the court that John was purposefully overacting so he would be found guilty and put to death. Not only was John identified by the contents of the note left on the car windshield, His fingerprints were later identified inside of the Oda's Rolls-Royce and a beer can that was left on the property. It was also determined that John had visited the Oda house before the murders. Several months prior, he went to the home, broke in, and stole items from inside, including a pair of binoculars. The prosecution laid out the following events as part of their theory of the crime. 
They believed that John had been watching the Oda household prior to the murders. Some of his friends later said that John expressed that he felt that Oda's were too materialistic and should be, quote, snuffed out. On October 19, 1970, John went to the Oda house armed with a handgun. When Virginia Oda came home, he threatened her with the gun, tied her up with a scarf from inside the house, and waited for the rest of the family to arrive. The next people who came to the home were one of the boys and Dr. Oda's secretary, Dorothy. John tied them up as well, and it was speculated that Dorothy picked up Dr. Oda's son from school because Virginia had not been there when school let out that day, because John was already holding her captive. Then Dr. Oda returned to the home with their other son, and they too were tied up and all of the captives were led out to the backyard by the pool. It was there that John allegedly lectured them about the evils of materialism and the importance of protecting the environment. Dr. Oda began to argue with John and then offered him whatever he wanted if he would just leave his family alone. This request set John off, and he pushed Dr. Oda into the pool. As Dr. Oda tried to climb out, John shot him multiple times with the gun. Then John killed the rest of the family and left their bodies in the pool. He then set the house on fire after typing the note that he left on the Rolls-Royce windshield. The jury didn't believe that his actions amounted to not guilty by reason of insanity, and they felt the evidence against him was strong enough to convict. John was found guilty of five counts of murder in November of 1971. He was sentenced to death, which according to his statements during trial was what he wanted. His sentence was later commuted to life in prison when California temporarily abolished the death penalty in 1974. John was incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison, north of San Francisco. Once his sentence was commuted to life in prison, he was eligible for parole every five years. Now you can be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, But at the time his death sentence was commuted, this was not an option. Each time John came up for parole, it was denied. It was determined that he was still a threat to society, and it would be irresponsible and dangerous to release him. At his final parole hearing in 2008, the Santa Cruz District Attorney's Office issued a statement saying, Some people deserve to be punished for the rest of their lives. Frazier is such a man. The Oda's home was restored after the fire in preparation to be sold. It was put on the market in 1972, and the listing price was $185,000, which was below the market average. It eventually sold in a private sale. Tragedy struck the Oda family again in 1977. 
The oldest Oda child, Tora, who was 18 when her parents and brothers were murdered, took her own life. She was only 25 years old, and in the years since the murders, Tora had struggled immensely to cope with the violence that her family had suffered. She had married her husband and relocated to the East Coast where she was living when she died. She was discovered by her mother-in-law and buried next to her family in Santa Cruz. Lark, the only surviving member of the Oda family, who was 15 when the murders happened, went on to graduate from Stanford University. Two years after Tora died, tragedy struck again when Dr. Oda's mother took her own life in 1979. Much like Tora, Dr. Oda's mother had trouble coping with the immense violence that her son and his family had suffered. John was transferred from San Quentin State Prison, which houses California's death row inmates, to Mule Creek State Prison in Central California. During his incarceration, he had multiple run-ins with disciplinary issues. He would refuse to participate in his assigned work orders, and he also refused to participate in mandatory counseling. There was also an instance where John was involved in some capacity with a prison stabbing. Much of John's bizarre behavior that was seen at trial did not abate with his prolonged incarceration. It was theorized that John may have had a predisposition towards psychotic breaks, and it was exacerbated by his psychedelic drug use. It was after he began using acid that he began telling people God was sending him messages to take revenge on people who harm the environment. Because medical records are confidential, the extent of the treatment that he received in prison is unknown. On August 13, 2009, John Lindley Frazier was found dead inside of his cell. He was found hanging and his death was ruled a suicide. The Santa Cruz District Attorney was tasked with contacting Lark, the last surviving child of the Odas. John's death came just months after his parole was denied once again. Throughout his 39-year incarceration, he declined to give a detailed explanation as to why he decided to kill the Ota family that fateful day in October of 1970. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. 
And lastly, if there is a case that you would like to see covered, I have a case submission tab on my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners. So if you submit a case, I'll do my best to cover it on a future episode. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.